I think you did brave something to get out here. The problem, Lee, is this isn't Minnesota. That's the problem. But I know what you mean about perspective. It's, yeah. I keep trying to look at that and see that negative 54 or whatever it is up there, and it's not making me feel any better right now. So, But anyway, there's, what I tend to think of is there's going to be a day this summer, and it's going to be 100 degrees, and, you know, Everybody's going to be whinging about that, and so it all balances out. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, though, for being here, cold weather, hot weather, whatever it is, and I appreciate your interest. Like I said this morning in this series that we're calling Basic, What Every Christian Ought to Know. And um, just to recap, because I'm, do- I'm doing this for myself as much as I'm doing this for you. This isn't to set this out as the uh, core doctrine and to say, okay, here's the core doctrine, here's what you have to know, here's the, you know, here are the, uh, the fundamental rules. That's not what we're trying to do. Trying to pinpoint some things that, again, just ought to be basic, just some things that ought to be the sort of thing you can hold on to. And to separate that out from things that are advanced, okay, that would be one side of basic, and, um, and, and, and things that, that we sometimes overlook that ought to be basic. So that got me thinking. We have now covered a certain amount of, of, uh, certain amount of material trying to talk about uh, the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? And I can tell you that having conversations with people who are seeking the truth or maybe they're helping others seek the truth, it comes up in conversation, what is this Bible all about? Where did it come from? And although we may find some satisfaction in the answer, or some of us may find satisfaction in the answer, it says, well, it's just simply God's word, uh, God's word. I take it on faith. Okay, not going to argue with you there. But understand that there are some things that I think we can know that will take it a step further. Because in our conversations with others, in our conversations with one another, there are going to come times that we have to know, okay, will, you know, can I lean on this? If this is God's word, can I lean on it? Or if this is God's word and there's so much of it, can I understand it? So we've talked about the New Testament. We've talked how the, we, we, we've, we've mentioned that the New Testament was formed over a uh, period of time, less than 100 years. It assumes the Old Testament. Just recently we looked at Psalm 110 and the way Psalm 110 gets uh, interpreted through the lens of Jesus Christ, that they see Jesus Christ in Psalm 110, they being the early church, and they see Jesus in that, and that becomes their, uh, their scripture, and they understand it through the new revelation in Jesus Christ. We've talked about the New Testament canon, that there is a list that in this period of time, the uh, early church came to recognize that there are some writings that deserve to be shared. Uh, they deserve to be preached and proclaimed and read to churches everywhere. And those are added to the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. When it comes to the canon or the list of the Old Testament books or the Hebrew Bible, that process involves a process over many centuries. And I decided, 
you know, this is not basic. This is advanced. And, I, and I, I, there's, there's so much study on this, I don't know that it is as basic. But I'll tell you what is basic, in, in, in my opinion, if you'll you know, just kind of join me in the conversation here. Um, what's basic is that there are some, there are four, in fact. There are four themes or four events that bring all of the Old Testament narrative into focus. If you've, if you've even dabbled at all with uh, uh, telescopes and astronomy, you, you, know, you know that light comes in and it's magnified and reflected and then it's focused so that you can see objects far away. Uh, when my children were little, we used to have a, uh, what was called a Newtonian telescope, a four and a half inch Newtonian telescope, and the light would come in. And it would gather down at the mirror, and then it would come up, and it would be reflected, and then it would come through the eyepiece, and you would adjust that so that you would bring it into focus. One of my favorite objects to look at was Saturn. Because if you look up in the sky and you see Saturn, it looks like a planet or a star. It's just another bright light in the sky. When you put it in the telescope and you bring it into focus, it's got that Saturn shape. That little ring around it, just like, uh, you know, just like the little symbol that you see for Saturn. And this always happened. Somebody would look at Saturn for the first time. They would get it into focus. And, and on these telescopes, you're looking into the eyepiece. And then right here, uh, you know, what is that? Uh, perpendicular to the eyepiece is the opening of the telescope where the light comes in. And it goes down to the end, and it's reflected back up. Whenever you aim that on Saturn, people look into it, and then they come away from the eyepiece, and they look down the barrel of the telescope like, wait, there's something in there. This is not real. It always happens. It always happens. I even did it the first time. I thought, no way. When you understand how to make all of this work together, you begin to see things that are really there. It's not an illusion. And I want to give you the four lenses or the four adjustments that I think everyone ought to know, the basics of the Old Testament. Now, the first of these is not what you might expect. It's not Genesis. Genesis is very important. Genesis is extremely important. But Genesis comes along and is part of a group of material, the first five books. We call it the, uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And, uh, but the key event... The event that starts making sense of everything is the Exodus. I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 20 to begin with. And I'm going to, I'm going to hit a few of these. These are not the only verses, but these are important ones and good examples. Exodus 20 uh, gets into what we call the Ten Commandments. And it's, there's ten, but then it keeps going. There's more than that, but the first ten are are uh, considered uh, somewhat special and important. But they begin with an understanding. It, it all begins with relationship. Now, the Ten Commandments are not just dropped out of the sky and we're given these instructions and told, you follow this or else. No, there's a relationship. So in uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
That's the relationship that Yahweh, God, the Lord God, has with these people. They were once slaves, now they have a new identity. One thing about slaves, people in slavery do not get an identity of their own. They're given the identity of their slave masters. They are given the identity of the uh, people who've conquered them, who've enslaved them. God is now restoring this people and he's giving them this identity and he's teaching them how they ought to live. The Exodus event, that story that's told where they were in slavery, they cried out to God. God remembered his promises to the patriarchs and that's where Genesis starts to come into this. Um, He rescues these people and then he's bringing them back to the land that he promised their uh, forefathers. That's the center of their identity. That's their, that's their origin story. And the Passover becomes a, um, a ceremony, a ritual, an observance that they keep annually so that the story is told and the story is acted out and the story is remembered at the Passover feast. And it's told from generation to generation. Now, right along with this, I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy is a, you know, these books always have such interesting titles. Exodus, uh, if you were to really translate that into English, would mean um, the way out or the exit. Uh, That's what what it means. It's taken from uh, uh, from the Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's, it's the going out. Deuteronomy means the second law or the, you know, the second copy of the law. It's a retelling of, of some of the, the same Exodus events. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we've got four Gospels. We've got Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, they go together. Uh, in, in, in 6, now Deuteronomy comes to us as Moses speaking to the people. It's his farewell speech, and he's reminding them of these things. That's why it's the second telling of the second giving of the law. Uh, In 6, Moses says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey um, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a, yeah, so that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. In the future, when your child asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? You tell that child, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to live And to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. And you have here the image of the the transmission of what is basic, the basic story being passed on from generation to generation. Now... I want you to stop and think with me right there around verse uh, 21. If this is to take place from generation to generation, isn't it going to be so that there will come a time when there will be a child who will ask, what is the meaning of these stipulations? And when the answer is given, we were slaves, no such thing is true. There will be a generation that they, they weren't in slavery. It was their ancestors. So why would Moses instruct them to say this? Because it has nothing to do with whether or not they were the actual generation in slavery. It has to do with what the Lord did for one generation that created them and made them into a people And then how that is passed on and transmitted to each and every generation. So each generation owns this story as if it is their own happening to them right then. That's how this functions. So this becomes the center of their identity. This is the story that tells them this is who we are. Now, What's great about this is that each generation does not have to rediscover itself all over again they know who they are they know the story and the story is the story of a great and mighty God who is just as much their God as he was the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and of Moses and of their fathers their grandfathers their great-grandfathers and on and on and on and this God still cares for them and and he asks each of them to follow his ways. They've got Sinai, they've got the covenant. So in the telling of this story, each generation owns this identity. The first lens or the first adjustment that you're going to want to take with you as you read any of the Old Testament is the Exodus. Even when you're reading Genesis, 
you want to keep the exodus in mind. That's basic. And you're going to be thinking, wait a second, Genesis happens before Exodus. Yes, it does. But it, it anticipates the exodus, and it anticipates some other events too. All right. Um, the second adjustment that you're going to want to keep in mind is the kingdom, the formation of the kingdom. I want to read to you from 1 Samuel 8. Um, the people are in this land now. They're in this land that God has promised them. The, uh, the tribes of Israel, the children of Israel. And Israel is not just the name of a nation. It's the name of a person. It's the name of Jacob. It's his new name. It's his, it's his identity. These are his descendants. This is, this is the living fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And here they are now in this land. They're surrounded by people who are organized by royal governments. And the reason you have a king is so that you have one leader who can command and control everyone else. And and, and it works something like this. Uh, If I'm the king and, and all of you are my people, I expect certain things from you. And, uh, and I need you to help me form a military, form an army, rule, judge, so we have a good society and we can get bigger and bigger and we can deal with the neighbor nations. Now, if one of the neighbor nations shows up and starts, you know, m- most of the time, uh, I as the king, you as the people, we're going to be, um, you know, we're going to be okay. There's going to be some things that we have to take care of internally. But where it really comes into play is when the neighbor nation over here is causing trouble, they're playing their music too loud, they're making fun of us, they're throwing rocks at our kids and stuff like that, and that's when the king steps up and says, okay, you know what, you, you guys come with me, we're going to get some pipes and some bats and we're going to go take care of them. That's why you have a king, someone who will fight for you, someone who will lead you into battle, someone who can summon the name of the Lord and protect your people. You want a king so that you can be secure. But there's a problem with that. God has always said that he is the one that will take care of his people. He's their shepherd. He's their protector. He's their defender. He got them out of Egypt. Egypt is the worst neighbor on the block. No one is stronger than Egypt. And they had us enslaved. Do you remember our Exodus story? And he took us out of that with a mighty hand, with a strong arm. Led us by day with a, uh, a cloud, led us by night by a pillar of fire. He was always right there with us. But the people want a king. They've got a leader. They've got Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. Samuel speaks for God. But Samuel's kids just, well, they're, they're, they're really, they're not Samuel. And are they really going to take over? I mean, we need, some, we need some assurances here. We need a royal family. And that's the way the neighbors do it. So you get to 1 Samuel 8. Samuel grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They served at Beersheba. But his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain 
They accepted bribes. They perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel. They said to him, you're old. Your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, just like the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Um, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt. There's the exodus. That's your first lens. Until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Samuel said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be his commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves, and he'll give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain And of your vintage, and he will give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle, and the donkeys he'll take for his own, and he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. Has that ever been a problem for these folks? Exodus. When that day comes, Samuel warns them, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but... The Lord will not answer you in that day. See, the difference here is when they were in Egypt, that was a change of government. Joseph was doing really well down there in Egypt, and his people were doing okay, and that's why they moved to Egypt. But then something happened in the administration of Egypt, and then they got enslaved, and that wasn't fair. But on this one, Samuel is warning them, and he's saying, now look, this time... If you end up like that, it's on you. If you pay the protection money, you've got to deal with the consequences. I I always wondered if Samuel, or if God even, but if Samuel really kind of hopes the people say, "Mm, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, okay, that's, that's fair enough. We We didn't think about all that, Samuel. Thanks for pointing that out. Woo, we dodged a bullet there. I really wonder if Samuel was hoping they would say that. But that's not what they do. They refuse to listen to Samuel. No, 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 they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. You're going to get enslaved. Yeah, fight our battles. Yeah. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them. Give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, I love this line, everyone go back to your own town. Uh, What else is there to say? Go home. Uh, They get their king. And it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's really good, like David. 
God really helps them out there. He didn't want them to have a king, but if they were going to have a king, he was going to make sure they had a good king. And now you've got a standard for a good king. You've got David. He's a shepherd. He cares about God, and yet he does everything. You know, he does the things that Samuel warns them that a king's going to do. Some kings don't work out very well at all. And that leads to the problems, the sins, the the failure of this nation called Israel, which then becomes Israel and Judah, and that's history, which leads to our third adjustment, our third lens that we read everything through, and that's the exile. Okay, the exile is the term that we use to describe Judah's captivity, Judah being the southern kingdom. Now, Israel... The, the tribes in the north are conquered in the 8th century B.C. by Assyria. That's a problem, but not as much of a problem as when Jerusalem falls. To put it in our terms today, it would be as if um, you know, some enemy decides to uh, conquer the western United States and they get Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada and uh, Utah, and the rest of us, we've got Washington, D.C., and we're like, eh, it's too bad. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll make it. You know, we've still got Hawaii. And, um, and so we, we let it go. It's sad. They, they, it's their fault. And, and we go on because we've got the capital. We've got New York City. We're, we're good. We've got Chicago even and New Orleans. So we're, we're thinking we're all right. And uh, this is, but they had already left. They'd already separated and divided out. But when Jerusalem falls, there's a real problem because Jerusalem is where the temple of the Lord is located. What does it say when an invading enemy can knock over the house of your God? That's not supposed to happen. So in the 6th century B.C., this happens, and the people are carried away. They lose the temple. They lose the kingdom. Because the king is taken captive. They lose the priesthood. If you don't have a temple, why do you need a priesthood? That's all over with. They lose the land that was promised to them. When you lose all of that, you've got an identity crisis. You talk about identity theft, that's identity theft at another level. Um, So, the spokespersons of God, the prophets... Come to the people and and try to help them make sense of what's going on by delivering the message of the Lord to the people. A prophet is not a fortune teller. A prophet is a spokesperson. Someone who brings a thus saith the Lord. Um, You've got your prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, Ezekiel. And the words of these prophets are aimed at the two nations, Israel and Judah, during their time of crisis. So if you look, for example, at Isaiah 1 and 2, I want to read you just a little bit of that. Isaiah starts out, this is in the time of Assyria invading the northern kingdom. Uh, That's the earlier invasion. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Those decisions that they made with Samuel play into this, and the prophet Isaiah is trying to tell them, this is the result of your rebellion. You are not following the Lord's ways. Remember what Moses said to them when he was telling them about coming into the land? He said, if you keep his ways, you've got to remember who brought you there. Now you see the exodus, and you see the kingdom, and now you see how it's all playing into the exile. This is why those three things work together. Um, In Isaiah chapter 2, there is mention of Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. That becomes the, the refuge for the people who are lost in the northern kingdom. But then there's some idea that this is going to continue on even beyond that. And hold off there. We'll get to the fourth lens in just a moment. But the prophets help the people who've lost all of this, who have this problem of identity. And it doesn't just happen on the day of, but it happens over the next uh, dec- few decades as they're coming to grips with what does it mean for us to be God's people? Because there's, there's a real crisis here. How did the enemy knock over God's house? Is their God more powerful than our God? And this is where the creation stories in Genesis and in Psalm 104 become very important. Because in those creation stories, we're reminded that Yahweh, that God created everything... He even created the things that those uh, captors, the Babylonians, consider gods. But our God conquered their God. Our God made their God. And so there's there's some internal messaging going on there in those creation stories. Um. These people in the exile are trying to discover what it means to be God's people. One of the the things that they discover is that we are God's people. If you take the land away, if you take the, the, the physical structure of the temple away, if you take all of that away, we can still be God's people if we keep his ways, if we follow his words, if we follow his law. And that's where they get their identity, in the story and in the, the, the stipulations the way they live, the behavior. And that's where a lot of this is coming from. Much of your written Bible, as we understand it, I mean, until then, it's stories and it's prophecies that are spoken. But when it's written down, it's written down in the exile, much of it. Not all of it, but much of it. And, and that's how they are finding their, their identity. I'll give you one more prophet who speaks at this time. Because remember, I said there's a problem What do you do if the enemy's God knocks over your God's house? Well, in Ezekiel 1, you have this strange language about Ezekiel seeing a wheel. And there are wheels within wheels. And there are strange creatures coming out from the wheels within wheels. And this is not some science fiction episode. This is God's chariot attended by his heavenly creatures coming to Ezekiel, appearing to Ezekiel, and notice um, where Ezekiel is. 
uh, in Ezekiel 1, we, we always start, start with, you know, and I saw wheels within wheels. No, go back. He, he said, he, get the setting. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, that's specific. While I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Who's he with? He's with the exiles. He's somewhere he's not supposed to be. He's outside the land. He's away from the temple. God shows up. God's not limited to the temple. God has a mode of transportation. He has a vehicle. They didn't know that, they didn't know that God could go where he wants. Here's his chariot. He goes out there to where they are. He can go anywhere. He can go anywhere around the earth, on the earth. He can go anywhere. He can be anywhere. This is the meaning of Ezekiel's vision. When you get to chapter 2, uh, he has a message for Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I'll speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they will listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Don't be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. I think he said that, hasn't he? Uh, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. It's becoming repetitious at this point. You see the point that's being made? That's how you make that point. You say it over and over again. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Don't rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And God's going to give him the words, a scroll. It's the image of eating that scroll and then he's going to preach it. Ezekiel is here to call these rebellious people back to God, even though they're in exile. So you have the exodus, you have the kingdom, you have the exile. But we know at the time of Jesus, there is a temple, isn't there? There is a Jerusalem. The people are back in the land. There's one more lens that we need to view things through, and that's the lens of the restoration I don't mean the restoration movement. I mean the restoration of Israel. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Very, very nice verse, but I want you to understand its context. Uh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double. For all her sins, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain hill shall be made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. Now, the early church is looking at that and they're seeing Jesus in that, they're they, they remember the sermons of John the Baptist. That's his text. 
but why did Isaiah say that? Because Isaiah has a message for the people who are in exile that they're going to be comforted because they're going to get to go back to the land and, 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 and this has all been forgiven and put aside. Now, John the Baptist, uh, Matthew and Mark will use that text to, you know, to explain what John the Baptist is all about and that the ultimate comfort comes in Jesus, that that's the ultimate glory of the Lord. But the first meaning of this is that the people will go back. And there are books in here that are after the exile. There are writings in your Bible, your Old Testament Bible, that are after the exile, like Zechariah and Haggai. And um, well, there's more, but th- those, are, those, are, those are the ones I want to focus on right now. Haggai, just two chapters, Haggai uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah also, those are the others. And they, they go together as a set of documents that explain what's going on here. Because now you have this generation that's getting back to the project of restoring Israel. They've got this, they've got this opportunity to, to get it right this time. They've thought it through. They've, they've read the documents. They know about the exodus. They know about the kingdom and the failure of the kingdom. They know about the exile. Now they have the opportunity to restore this. For, for Ezra, for Nehemiah, for Haggai and Zechariah, this is real time for them. For you and I, it's the past. For Jesus, it'll be the past in the world that, that uh, he comes into and for the early church. But for them, it's real time. So like, in, for example, in Haggai, at the end of Haggai, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overturn royal thrones and I'll shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall. Each Horses and riders will fall. Which lens is that? Exodus. Um, Each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and I'll make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. God is putting his stamp of approval on Zerubbabel. This is God's, he's signing off on the, resurrect, on, the, on the restoration. He's saying, this is, I'm endorsing this. If you uh, jump over, just right there, it's just next door, Zechariah 3. Zechariah has these visions that, you know, whereas Haggai is telling you what's happening here on earth, Zechariah is giving you a vision of what's taking place in heaven to mimic this, to copy this, to parallel with this. Zechariah 3, uh, Zechariah is seeing visions, and um, the, uh, the angel shows him Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This is the heavenly court. You've got the prosecutor. You've got the accuser, Satan. He's accusing Joshua, the high priest, and his job is to tell God that they're not worthy of, uh, of him. That they've committed sins, that they've done things. This is the lens of the exile and of the kingdom, the failed kingdom. And even of the exodus, that they didn't listen to Moses. But this is where things turn and the restoration begins. Because God steps up and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now what does that mean? 
that means that they thought they had lost the priesthood, the lineage of the priesthood. But they've recovered it. Joshua is the survivor. He can become the, the, the new the head of the new priesthood. Now we've got a king, Zerubbabel. We've got a priest, Joshua. This could all happen, is what they're thinking at the time of this. And that's the story of the restoration. The kingdom's going to be restored. And Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the, uh, the, everything that's involved in restoring the city and the temple and all of that. And now once again, when you go to the early church... And that wonderful sermon that we call the, the, the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus is described as both king and high priest all in one. And he's from the house of David, but he's greater than the house of David. And he's from a new priesthood, not the lineage of Joshua, but Melchizedek. He's eternal. And the temple is not just in a location on earth that could be knocked down by Babylonians, but the temple is in heaven, and the temple is us. But now that we know how to get through our document, through our text, now that you have your lenses and can start seeing things that are really there, that you can get it into focus, and you can now you know what to look for. You're like, oh, I see it. I see it in the night sky. I see what's there, and it's really, really there. It's not an illusion. Now that we've done that, we can start looking at some of these big themes like God and Christ and salvation and atonement and, the, and, and sin and what is it. I mean, I'm talking about the basics of these things. And that's what we'll do, Lord willing, from here on out. Thank you for your attention here. Um, right now, communion's been prepared in room 100. And, uh, and by the way, I've been told there's a fellowship afterwards, so you're invited to that. But let's sing this song, and if you need to partake of communion, that's in room 100, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. Please stand.